So great to see you. Take your copy of God's Word this morning and open to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 4 uh, together this morning. We have one more week after today in the book of Colossians. And so uh, we're coming to the close of this wonderful New Testament book. While you're turning to Colossians 4, let me just kind of give you a little preview of where we're going over the next few months in terms of uh, books of the Bible and so forth that we'll be looking at. Um, As soon as we're done with Colossians, we're going to look at the small letter, it's only one chapter, uh, of Philemon, which actually went to the church at Colossae with the letter to the Colossians. So actually Paul sent two letters to the church at Colossae, and we're going to look at Philemon uh, the first week of February, and then we're going to go to the Old Testament, we're going to look at a minor prophet uh, by the name of Haggai, I spend a few uh, weeks in the book of Haggai. We're going to come back to the New Testament. And uh, leading up to Easter, we're going to do a series uh, towards the end of the book of uh, Matthew uh, uh, that I'm just going to title The Road to the Cross, where we're going to track the events leading up to the cross and resurrection. That'll get us to Easter. Then after Easter, we'll go back to the, uh, any guesses? Old Testament. That's exactly right. We'll go back to the Old Testament. And we're going to do a series for 10 weeks in Exodus chapter 20 and uh, talk about the Ten Commandments. How should we read and understand that as Christians? Then sometime we'll be, I think, in the summer, probably by that point, and uh, we'll come back to the... Good, very good. You're catching on. Back to the New Testament. And uh, we're going to look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, across the course of the summer. And then in the fall, help me, we're going back to the Old Testament. That's right. And I'm going to start a series in the book of Genesis. And so we're going to take our time going through the book of Genesis. I have no clue how long that will take. It's 50 chapters. So just one sermon per chapter puts us at about a year. But I already know I have one sermon on Genesis 1-1. So (laughs) it may take a little longer than a year. But we'll spend our time just walking through the book of Genesis And I'm not committing to this right now, but I'm thinking about it. Once we're done with the first book of the Bible, I might go to the last book of the Bible. So we'll see about that. Stay tuned, okay? We'll see about that. All right, have you found your way to Colossians chapter 4? Hopefully I've given you enough time to find your way there. As we look at what Paul says about the way that Christians ought to live in the world, We're coming to the conclusion of a section that Paul has begun in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, where Paul says that we are to seek the things above. If you know Christ and if you've experienced the gospel, the good news of Jesus, you've been made new by Christ, then your priority in life is to seek the things above where Christ is. And everything in chapters 3 and 4 Paul just begins to talk about the implications of what that means for all the different aspects of our life. This is what it looks like to seek the things above as it relates to our own inner life. This is what it looks like to seek the things above uh, in terms of the relationships we have with others in the church. This is what it looks like to seek the things above in our homes, at our work, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what three and, chapters 3 and 4 are all about what it looks like to seek the things above. And when you come to chapter 4, verses 2 through 6, Paul is now going to talk about what does it look like to seek the things above when it comes to how we relate to the world around us. 
And that's really an important question for us to think about. When when you're made new by Christ, what is your relationship to the world, to the culture in which we live? What comes to your mind when you think about your posture toward the world? Well, there are a few images that come to my mind that I think are probably fairly common out there. The first thing that comes to my mind is the image of a hermit in a monastery. And sometimes when people come to know Jesus, they think that they're supposed to withdraw from the world, right? We're to isolate. We're to pull away from the world. And so some Christians do that. They think, well, I don't want to be stained, you know, by this evil world out there. And so I'm going to become isolated. Another image that comes to my mind in terms of how Christians live in the world, relate to the world around them, The image comes to my mind of that street preacher that I saw one time in my hometown of Houston who was standing on the side of a corner on a Saturday morning. I'm heading to my little league baseball game. There's a street preacher. He's got a big cardboard sign, and I'm reading it, turn or burn. So that's a different model of relating to the world, isn't it? The hermit in the monastery says, Okay, I'm, I'm made new by Christ, so I'm going to withdraw from the world. The street preacher with the cardboard sign says, I'm not withdrawing from the world. I'm going to engage, but it's really engaging in battle. So it's hostile toward the world. And you see kind of a model out there uh, in some churches where that's the way they interact with the world. It is, it is hostile. It's engaged in battle. It's engaged in combat. And people think, well, now I'm a Christian, now I'm against the world. The hermit says, I have to be away from the world. The street preacher or protester out on the street says, I'm against the world. And so they're not isolated, but they are alienated. And then I think the third image that comes to my mind in terms of how Christians relate to the world, the picture that comes to my mind would be the, what I'm calling the culturally comfortable churchgoer. Uh, This is the person who is moderately religious. They attend church from time to time. They profess to be religious. But if you look at their life, there's actually no distinguishable difference between them and the world. They value what the world values. Anytime that being a believer out in public becomes uncomfortable, they choose the path of least resistance. There's a term that uh, you've probably heard that describes this type of person, it's the cultural Christian. Right, I'm a Christian because I'm an American. Or I'm from the South, and I go to church from time to time. So, of course, I'm a Christian. They don't don't really know Christ. There's no distinguishable difference between their life and the life of the world. And so, if you think about uh, the hermit in the monastery who's away from the world, or the protester out on the street who's against the world, the culturally comfortable churchgoer is allied with the world. If the hermit is isolated and the protester is alienated, the culturally comfortable churchgoer is compromised. They look like a shapeshifter or a chameleon. Just changes colors when you're with Christian people and then changes colors back when you're with people in the world. And I, th- I think as you look across America and see how Christians engage in the world, you see All those types of models all over the place, don't you? Well, Paul describes something different. He describes in this section what it looks like for someone who is seeking the things above 
to live faithfully in the world. And here's the big idea that I just want you to get this morning, that is that a Christian that is properly postured toward the world is someone who simply prays diligently and lives intentionally. I want you to see what Paul says in the text. A, A Christian who lives in the world the way God has called us to live is somebody who prays diligently and lives intentionally. Okay, so let's, let's look at see what Paul has to say to us. Paul teaches us, first of all, that in our relationship with the world, we're to pray diligently. Look at what he says in Colossians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, devote yourselves to what? To prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer. Stay alert or watchful or awake in it with thanksgiving. And at the same time, pray also for us that God May Look what it says here in the text, that God may open a door for us for the word to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains so that I may make it known as I should. So the first thing that Paul invites the church to do, he says, listen, you've been made new. You've been set inside of this world. What are you supposed to do? Well, the first thing you ought to do is pray for the world. Pray diligently. For the world. Pray for the word to have an open door. Pray that I might be able to share the gospel with the people around me. He's not against the world. He's not allied with the world. He's not isolated and away from the world. He's fully engaged, living on purpose, praying diligently for the world. And that's really the first thing that we need to do when we're made new and we begin to look at our our old friends who don't know Christ and we look at this world that, listen, you just flip on Fox News and watch it for five minutes. Anybody else get depressed after about five minutes watching the news? And listen, we ought to not despair. We ought to pray. And when we see things happening in the culture that discourage us, we ought to not get angry. We ought to pray. We, not, we should not get hostile or combative or discouraged, depressed, and isolated. We ought to pray. And that's what Paul is calling us to do here. Now listen, this call to pray diligently tells us something about God and it tells us something about us. It teaches us something about God. If we're invited here to pray, it tells us, listen, if we have a God who wants us to pray It tells us at least a couple of things about the God we're to pray to. Number one, he is able. Amen? If God invites us to come to him in prayer, then that means that he is capable of answering our prayers. And some of you just may need to hear that word this morning. Maybe you've been praying about something and you're discouraged because you're not seeing God work and you just need to be reminded that he is able. And if he asks us to pray to him, that's because he is able to answer our prayers. There is no prayer that is too big that God can't answer. Amen? If God can heal the sick and cause the blind to see and cause the lame to walk and cause the dead to live, then God can answer your prayer. He is able. He is able. My Lord, he is able. And he is more than capable to to do above and beyond what? All that we ask or even think to ask. And so he is able. The other thing that we know from, from this invitation to prayers, not only is our God able to answer our prayers, I want you just to be encouraged with this truth. He is eager to answer our prayers. God loves answering prayer. Now, listen, he doesn't always answer the way we want him to because he knows better than we do. 
If you're reading the 21 Days to Childlike Prayer book, you've probably read this quote from Tim Keller. It's one of my favorite quotes about prayer. I was reminded of it yesterday. That when we ask God for things, to do something in our life, to do something in somebody else's life, he always either gives us what we asked for or what we would have asked for if we knew everything he knows. Isn't that good? God is always going to either give us what we asked for or what we would have asked for, maybe should have asked for, if we knew everything he knows. And so this is a wonderful assurance to rest in. When Paul says, pray diligently, we have to think, what do we believe about God that would cause us to pray? Well, we believe he's able to answer our prayers and he is eager to answer our prayers. But it also tells us something about us and what we're to do. Paul says, pray diligently. Uh, Some of you have a translation that says, devote yourselves to prayer. That's the CSB here, devote yourselves to prayer. It means to persist or to persevere in prayer. Remember the disciples in the garden of Gethsemane when Jesus goes to pray right before he heads to the cross and he urges them to watch and pray and he comes back a little bit later and what are they doing? They're taking a nap. And so he says, couldn't you just stay awake with me for an hour? Paul says, be diligent in prayer. Be devoted in prayer. And notice how he says to pray. Staying alert in it with thanksgiving. So I want you to notice the language he uses. Pray, staying alert with thanksgiving. There's actually three pieces here. It actually shows us a threefold rhythm in prayer. We pray, then we watch for God to answer. And then as as he answers, we thank him for answering. Pray, stay alert, watch, and then thank him. I was convicted this week as I was preparing this message. I'm not always very watchful when I pray. I pray and then I kind of move on. But here we're told to pray and then watch. Pray and stay alert. Pray and look for God to answer. And then when he answers, take time to thank him. So pray, watch, Give thanks. But notice now what, what Paul is asking the Colossian church to pray for specifically. What's the specific prayer request that Paul has in verses 3 and 4? Well, Paul says pray, staying alert with thanksgiving. Verse 3, at the same time, pray also for us. Can you say this with me? That God may, what does it say there? Open a door to us for the word, to speak the mystery of Christ for which I'm in chains so that I may make it known as I should. You see what Paul is asking them to pray for is that God would open a door for Christ to be made known. Folks, that's how we need to relate to the world around us. We don't pray against people. We pray for people. We ask God to open doors for us to bear witness to Jesus Christ to the people around us. I love what my friend Fred Luter uh, says. He says, we're all called to do frangelism. Frangelism, F-R-A-N. We are to share the gospel with our friends, relatives, associates, and neighbors. That's Paul's prayer request. He says, you've been made new. Now you have a responsibility to pray for your friends, your relatives, your associates, and your neighbors. You have a responsibility to pray that God would open a door so that we can bear witness to the gospel. One more thing here. Notice It's interesting to me what Paul asks them to pray for and what he does not ask them to pray for. 
If you just look at this text, what's the situation that Paul is in? He's in prison, right? How do you know that? Because the text says he's in chains. So this reminds us, Paul is writing this letter to the church at Colossae from a prison cell. Now, most of us, let me just not put this on you. Let me just tell you how I would pray. Okay, if I was in prison unjustly, you know what I'd be praying about? God, open my prison door. Let me out. I'm, I'm in prison. This is a terrible, terrible situation. That's not what Paul prays for at all, does he? He doesn't pray uh, like we often pray. We, we often pray that God would deliver us from whatever uncomfortable situation that we're in. Paul doesn't pray for deliverance. He prays for a door for the gospel to share Christ. He prays that his prison door would be an open door for the gospel. And that should make us ask this question, how might God be using the adversity in our life as an opportunity for the gospel? You see, we're so quick to want out of the adversity in our life, we're not looking for the opportunity that adversity brings. Maybe God has put Paul in prison on purpose. Maybe he's purposeful about Paul's uncomfortable situation and God has stuck him in that prison cell because he's got a purpose for him to be there. And oftentimes we're saying, God, deliver us from the adversity instead of saying, God, give me an opportunity. Sometimes we pray this way about the world. We say, God, oh, what a terrible, it's so bad. The news is so discouraging. Oh, the culture's so wicked. And we get angry or we get discouraged. We want to isolate or alienate or maybe compromise. Instead, we ought to be praying for our lost friends and our lost neighbors and our lost family members. We ought to be saying, God, you've stuck us right at hell's doorstep and you've given us a water pistol. Let's go. Amen? That's how we ought to pray. God, use this adversity. Use this uncomfortable situation. Use us in this wicked culture to bear witness to Jesus Christ. Maybe the thing we ought to be asking for is God to open an opportunity in the midst of our adversity. Paul's chains weren't as important as his charge, which was to make Christ known. So the posture here of a Christian living faithfully in the world is someone on their knees, praying to God. And there's a sense in which we're called to pray with our eyes open. We're, we're called to pray with an eye toward people. Have you ever seen somebody who's prayed with their eyes open? I had a professor in college who, at the end of chapel, he would get up and pray, but he'd pray with his eyes open, looking around the room. You know, he'd just be talking, hey, that was a great sermon. And Jesus, we're so thankful for what you're doing in our midst today. And then he would start praying the announcements with his eyes open. And you're like, do I close my eyes? Do I look at you? Do I write a note down? He's like, Jesus, I'm just thankful. We're going to be able to have lunch down in Horner Hall. And it's going to be today at 1130. And all of our students are invited. And like, what's going on here? It's kind of weird when people pray with their eyes open. But there's a sense in which that's how we're to pray. Paul says, pray for a door for the word. Pray but with your eyes open to the needs around you, to, to the world around you, praying for an awareness of the world, praying for the redemption of the world. world. We're called to be fully engaged in our world without compromising with the world. Instead, we're called to pray for the world. Amen? There, there's a sense in which we are like a, a 911 dispatcher. Where, where we see rough situations. The kids today would call it a, a situation that's ratchet. That's the slang these days. 
and we see these terrible situations all around us. And we're that 911 dispatcher that, that calls for help. We see the situation and we call somebody who can come and do something about it. That's our posture in the world. We see terrible situations all around us. And we call on God to do something about it. Folks, that's why we're emphasizing a daily time in prayer all throughout this year with this daily formation challenge that we've put before you. Because God wants us to pray and he loves to answer. I wish I could just keep preaching about that, but there's, there are more verses, okay? So I'm going to move on to verse 5. Verse 5 and 6. Paul says, not only are you to pray diligently, but now in verses 5 and 6, he tells us to live intentionally. Live intentionally. Look what he says in verses 5 and 6. He says, act wisely toward outsiders, making the most of the time. Literally, walk in wisdom with a view to those who are outside Christ, redeeming the time, and let your speech always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. So here he's telling us to live on purpose, live intentionally. He, he addresses our walk and our talk, okay? Our walk and our talk. Notice, first of all, he, he addresses the way we walk in verse five. He says, act wisely, walk in wisdom before outsiders, before those who don't know Christ, redeeming the time. Paul's saying we're to make sure that our conduct as Christians reflects our confession of Christ. In other words, he's saying, make sure your walk matches your talk. Make sure your conduct before the world matches your confession before the world. Make sure that you're living consistently as a Christian, aware of the fact that there is a watching world around us. Listen, when God makes you new and sits you in the middle of a culture, he calls you to live in such a way that your life points to the, to the truth of the gospel and that it doesn't discredit it. We're called to watch our walk, to live in wisdom in such a way that we don't discredit Christ by our behavior. We, we live so as to give a favorable impression of the gospel to our friends and neighbors in a watching world, right? We're, we're to do chapter 3, verse 17, whatever we do in word or in deed, we do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. We seek to walk with wisdom, live wisely toward outsiders, take, making the most of the time so that we don't discredit the message of the gospel by our lives. You know, the way that you live might, could discredit the gospel in the eyes of an unbeliever. Private sin in the life of a believer can cause public scrutiny to come to Christ and to Christ's church. Gandhi once said, um, I like your Christ, but not your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. What a tragic statement. What he's saying is, I, I like Jesus, but it doesn't seem like Jesus' people look anything like Jesus. And sometimes the way we live before a watching world discredits the gospel in the eyes of those who are outside Christ. And so Paul says, walk with wisdom, live wisely, conduct yourself carefully, watch your walk. I love the way that N.T. Wright puts it. He says that blameless life lays the foundation 
for gracious witness. Isn't that good? Blameless life lays the foundation for gracious witness. We all have friends, family members, work, co-workers, neighbors who are watching how we live. And they are waiting to see if we really mean it when we say that Jesus is Lord of all. They're waiting to watch, and sometimes they'll test you. <laughs> I used to pastor at Hobbs, New Mexico. I played on a softball team with a bunch of oil field guys. That was a, a living, breathing test every game. How is the pastor going to react, you know, when he gets thrown out trying to steal second base? And what is he going to do if we poke him and prod him and mess with him? They're testing, is he going to be consistent? Does he actually believe what he says he believes? And every single day for us as believers is like a test before the world. Are we living wisely toward outsiders, redeeming the time? Watch your walk. Amen? But then Paul addresses not just the way we walk, but the way we talk. Look in verse 6. He says, our speech should always be full of grace. CSB translates it gracious. But literally, it means full of grace. Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you should answer each person. You know that apologia, apologetics, is how we give an answer or a defense for the hope that's within us. Paul says, you ought to speak in such a way that your speech is full of grace, seasoned with salt, and that you know how to give a defense to each and every person. Let's just think about each of those three statements. Paul says, your speech should be full of grace. Someone says that this has a double meaning. It means that your speech should be full of God's grace and full of human graciousness. As a believer, how do we live in the world? Well, we watch how we talk. We, our speech should be full of the grace of God. Does your speech drip grace with the people around you? Imagine what a contrast here to the protester out on the street who hurls epithets at the world, who is angry and ungracious. Not so for believers in Christ. We ought to be full of God's grace in our speech and full of human graciousness. We ought to be gracious in how we speak with others about the gospel. Amen? Our talk should be full of the grace of God, and it should be gracious in the way we speak. That means full of kindness. You know, we ought to be like Jesus. In John chapter 1 and verse 14, it describes Jesus this way, that he is full of grace and truth. And there's something powerful about that, full of grace and truth. Here's what I think. Uh, if you look across the culture, you have some people who are full of truth without grace. And here's what they do. They condemn everybody around them. They're full of truth. They lack grace. And they just point their fingers at everybody all the time, condemning them. And then on the other hand, you have some who are full of grace, but they forget about truth. And they're not condemning, they're compromising. They're so gracious, they don't want to offend anybody anytime. But Jesus is full of both truth and grace. It's what I call convictional kindness. Holding firmly to our Christian convictions, our biblical convictions, but doing so with kindness and compassion and graciousness. That's what Paul means when he says, your speech, as you live in this world, should be full of grace. It should be 
gracious. And then he says it, it should be seasoned with salt. Now, what does that mean? Uh, he's saying your speech ought to be salty. Now, getting back to these oil field guys, they had some salty speech. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Uh, to have speech seasoned with salt in the ancient world, that was just reference to having pleasant speech. Your speech should have some flavor to it. But Paul says, listen, don't be a bore. Christians ought to not be boring people as we're talking about Jesus. You know, well, there's a God. He loves you, I guess. You ought to have some wit, some humor, uh, some salt, some flavor. If we're told in the first phrase to speak graciously, here he's telling us to speak winsomely about the gospel. That was how Jesus spoke. You notice that he was captivating, Jesus was, when he spoke. Always crowds are bustling around to hear. And Jesus had some salty kind of speech. He wasn't just vanilla all the time, was he? I hope that's not the picture that comes to your mind when you think about Jesus. He's not just this milk toast, vanilla, sort of boring guy. He's always telling, he, he's got little quips. He's got sarcasm. If you look at his sermons, it's full of irony, sarcasm, wit, humor, um, put downs. Yo mama jokes. You say, Jesus told a yo mama joke. Yes, he did. He called the Pharisees a brood of vipers. You know what a brood is? I mean, it means your mama's a snake. No wonder the Pharisees wanted to kill him. That's the, he, his speech was seasoned with salt. Speak winsomely. And then answering each one. Paul says you ought to speak in such a way that you, you know how to answer each one. You know, the way that we speak about Christ with others is that we see each person as an individual. We don't approach everyone exactly the same way. But we speak in such a way that we answer each person in the way that each person needs. We speak, in other words, if we're told in this first phrase to speak graciously, seasoned with salt means to speak winsomely. Here we're, we're told to speak wisely. You know, sometimes you'll share the gospel with someone who is arrogant. They are proud of their sin. And maybe what they need to hear is a good dose of the Ten Commandments. And because they need to be humbled so that they're ready to receive Christ. God gives grace to the who? The humble, right? But, but then there's some people you'll share the gospel with and they, their life is so broken. They are humbled. They're humiliated. And what they need is a big old dose of grace. You're going to speak to that arrogant person who's proud in their sin very differently to the, than to the person who realizes that they have broken and messed up. That's what Paul means here. You, you know how to answer each, each person as they need. Speak wisely. Ask God with the people in your circle of influence, your sphere of influence. Ask God, what does my friend need this, in this moment? How might I best share Christ with them? You know, there are some people, I remember sharing the gospel with someone who's now become one of my closest friends. He had all kinds of intellectual objections to the gospel. He's a smart guy, and we would have coffee for an hour every Monday afternoon. For nine months, all we did was answer one objection to the gospel after another. He would just come with all of his intellectual questions, and what he needed was intellectual answers. But then there have been other people I've shared the gospel with, and they really don't have any 
intellectual objections to the gospel. It's more volitional objections. Their heart doesn't want to submit. They believe in God. They just don't want to follow him. You got to talk to that person very differently than the person who just has intellectual objections. Other people, maybe their objection is not intellectual or volitional, but it's personal. They've been hurt. Maybe they've been hurt by another Christian or by the church. Or maybe they feel like God has hurt them and they're walking through a struggle. And they need, they need a, a pastoral, gentle word. They need to know of a God who loves them. Right? In every one of those cases, we speak to each person as they need. That's what Paul is saying. How you ought to live in the world. You live intentionally in your walk and in your talk, and how you live and how you speak. Speech full of grace, seasoned with salt, answering each one. And so the picture I have in my mind here is someone who lives as a light before the world in their walk and in their talk. Their life is like a living lighthouse. Have you ever been to a lighthouse on the coast? It's an amazing thing. And actually, it's a great metaphor for how we think about how to live in the world. God has actually put us in the world to be living lighthouses. A lighthouse is a beacon of hope. It's a beacon of light that, listen, beckons ships to come home. That's really our posture in the world. It's not with an angry fist at this wicked culture. It's a beacon of light saying, come home. Come home. I'm going to pray for you diligently. I'm going to walk consistently. I'm going to speak graciously so that my life is like a lighthouse to people all around me who are in fog. They are in treacherous seas. And I want my life to be a lighthouse calling them home. In verse 5, Paul says, live wisely toward outsiders. How do we live in the world? Here's how we live in the world. We're never content with the fact that there are still outsiders. We're never content with the fact that there are still people outside of Christ. We live on purpose so that those who are outside can come inside. Amen? That those who are outside of Christ will come home Find their home in Christ. Let me, let me finish with this. Alexander McLaren, who's a great Scottish preacher of yesteryear, he preaches an entire sermon on this one word, outsiders. Now, I'm doing better than that, okay? I know some of you are like, man, you've spent five months in Colossians. He preached one sermon on one word, outsiders. But he, he uses four analogies of what it means to move from being outside Christ to coming to Christ, finding your home in Christ. He, he uses the image of the ark. He says, if you're outside Christ, it's like being outside of Noah's ark. Outside of the ark, it's, it's death, it's despair. But if you'll come inside the ark, it's safe, it's dry, it's warm, you live. Then he says, moving from outside of Christ to coming into Christ is like being in a city of refuge. Now, you know what a city of refuge is from your Old Testament. If somebody uh, accidentally killed their neighbor, it's just an accident. It wasn't intentional. You know, they, they were hammering something. Their hammer flew out of their head, hit their neighbor in the 
killed him. And the neighbor's brother is mad because you killed him with your neighbor with a hammer, whatever. I'm just making this up right now. (laughs) What do you do? Well, God created a haven. Certain cities, it was called a city of refuge, where if you accidentally killed your neighbor, you could run. And as long as you were in the city of refuge, your neighbor's brother couldn't come kill you in revenge. And McLaren says, that's like a picture of what the gospel is. Outside Christ, it's an angry world. There's bloody death, full of revenge. But if you come to the city of refuge, there's safety. The third image he uses is the image of a banquet hall. He says, if you're outside Christ, it's dark. You're alone. You're sad. You're starving. But if you come into Christ, it's like being invited into a banquet hall. There's brightness and warmth. It's a palace. It's a table abundantly spread. There's lights and music and delight and dancing, gladness and fullness, and you're invited to come to the banquet. And then he says, the fourth image, he says, being outside of Christ, it's like a sheepfold. Outside is the lion and the bear. Inside the sheepfold, though, there's rest, there's peace, there's safety, there's companionship with the shepherd. Now, you can see how McLaren could preach a whole sermon on one word, right? Here's what he said. In the ark, no deluge can touch. In the city of refuge, no avenger can smite. In the banqueting hall, no thirst or hunger but can be satisfied. And in the fold, no enemy can come and no terror can live. That's what it means to come to Christ. You come to an ark of refuge, a city of refuge. You come to a banqueting hall. You come to a sheepfold where you know the shepherd. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus as Savior, let me tell you, you are invited to come in, to find your home in Christ. If you've never made that decision, you can, at the end of this service, go out in the lobby. There are decision prayer partners who can talk with you about how you can move from being an outsider, somebody who doesn't know Christ, to coming inside. If you're watching online with us today, you can text the word MBC to the number that's on your screen. Somebody will be in touch with you about how you can come into Christ. But here's the deal. If you know Jesus as Savior... You say, how do I live in this world? Our posture as believers is not to be away from the world. It's not to be against the world. It's not to be allied with the world. It is to pray diligently for the world and live intentionally in the world, in our walk and in our talk, so that outsiders may come in. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful that you invite us to, to come to you with our prayers, our petitions, with the things that are on our heart. Lord, help us to pray with our eyes open to the people and the needs around us. Help us to pray diligently, unceasingly for our friends, our relatives, our coworkers, our neighbors. And Lord, help us to live intentionally. Help us to be consistent in our lives. Help us to be gracious in our speech. Help us to live not pulling back from this 
difficult world, but fully engaged, living on purpose. Lord, help us to do this. It's only possible by your spirit. Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here today who doesn't know Jesus and they are today outside Christ, that today they would come in, find their way home. We pray in his name. Amen.